Should physicians get their employment contracts reviewed? I think so. And so today we're gonna spotlight the things you need to know to review your contract the right way. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we are going to discuss something that we have yet to discuss on any of the previous shows before, and that's physician contracts. There are so many elements to consider, lots of details, and most of it's in lawyer speak. Sounds super fun, I know. But here's the deal. These contracts are worth millions of dollars. Yes, millions. If you're earning, let's say, 250000 bucks a year, and you've got 20 years of work ahead of you, you're looking at a $5 million contract at a minimum. That's like professional sports type money. So you need to be serious about having it reviewed so you know just what's expected of you, what situations you're gonna be covered in, and what would happen if you decide to actually leave the position. It's confusing, I get it. And another person who gets it is our guest, John Apino from Contract Diagnostics. John has years of experience understanding the details of employment contracts similar to yours. He finds it fun, much like I find boosting financial education fun. We're like superheroes. Yeah, I went there. All right, before I let out another corny joke, let's jump right into the show with John and talk about what it looks like and what to look at in your contract. I am really excited to have our guest on today, and we've received so many questions. I mean, we're talking dozens of questions from all of you around your contracts, what to do, how to re- review them, should you get them reviewed. And we've got an expert on today, John Apino. John, so happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. So let's let's just jump right into this. Should a physician get their contract reviewed? We hear that a lot. Um, I don't know, Ryan, what percent of physicians out there who, I mean, I know the unemployment rate after uh, residency and fellowship is fairly low, of course. So most of them have contracts. Some are with, you know, government payers. Um, I, the la- latest data set that I saw showed 68% are with hospitals. The remainder with, of course, private practices, or they, they go into practice on their own. Um, and so unless they're going into practice on their own, chances are they'll receive an agreement or a letter or something to sign that obligates them to the job, the duties, of course, compensation. And uh, should they be reviewed? I mean, these are very important documents. And you think about a physician who has a lot of time and a lot of money into themselves training for this time when your income goes up and you're now finally taking your you know real job is what many of them tell us. And uh, should they be reviewed? Absolutely. Uh, we just feel there's too much on the table. Now, of course, we have a, a biased view. I mean, we run a company that specializes in contract reviews. But whether you know somebody uses us or a different firm or a local company, we think that these things should be understood because we've seen so many times and had so many stories from physicians where they didn't have it reviewed. They didn't know what their expectations are. 56% of physicians don't stick around after their first agreement. And so what happens on that transition can be really important. It can cost money. You know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in tail insurance or a lost bonus dollars. How do you terminate? Can you terminate? 
Uh, can you even work in the area? All those things are really important. And if a physician doesn't understand what those expectations are, which aren't always blatantly clear in the agreement, then there could be some issues downstream with either what their future employment looks like, how they renegotiate, or their next step. And so should they be reviewed? We think so. We just heard way too many times of a physician that said, I didn't get it looked at and I wish I had. Now I'm having my second contract looked at. So we think these are very important documents. And of course, they should be looked at by a professional. Yeah, I kind of carried you there because of of course, it's important. That's why we brought you on because this is something (laughs) I think is extremely important. I've dealt with it with several clients where they said, hey, I'm not so happy here. I'd like to move, but now I've got this out clause. You know, what am I going to do here? Oh, I've got to pay back a bonus, a sign-on bonus that they told me was mine. But when you actually reviewed it, you owed X amount of months that uh, you're leaving early. Now you owe some money back to them. Uh-oh, we don't actually have that money. Uh, so what do you do? Yeah. Are you stuck? How does that look? Now negotiating with the potential new employer to get some compensation um, on how that looks. So Obviously, they're not experts in reviewing their own contracts. This takes a very specialized skill set, if you will. But I'd really like for physicians and everyone listening here to walk away with some knowledge on what are they actually looking for? How do you read a contract? So let's jump right in and talk about reading a contract and what to look out for. Yeah. So I know somebody who looks at it, a specialist, et cetera, you think you're, you're kind with those words. I think it's simple, but not easy. Simple as in the fact that we look at contracts and what to look for. Contracts are about expectations. So what am I going to do for you? And then what are you going to do for me? And then what happens if I don't uphold my end of the bargain or you don't do yours or we want to break up or go our own direction? So if you look at from from a physician's perspective, what am I going to do for you? Well, that's duties. That's services. That's your schedule. That's your location. How much call are you taking? Do you have administrative time? When do you complete your records? How many patients a day can they schedule you for? All those things are expectations, right? And we don't sometimes see a lot of clarity in that. And that's a very good, you know, something to have in the contract, not a minimum number of hours, not you'll take call as we suggest, or not you'll work in a location that we tell you to, but very granular details we like to see. And then the reversal of that is the other expectation is what are you going to do for me? So that's obviously they're going to, the employer is going to pay compensation to the physician. So let's get a lot of granularity around that. Is there a base salary? Is it guaranteed? If you don't produce, do you owe what you didn't produce? If there's bonus structures, is it RVU based? Is there a collection bonus? Are there quality metrics? What are those metrics? When are these bonuses paid? And so there's all these expectations that may be in there, may not be in there. There may be 20 expectations that should be in a contract around compensation, but the contract has 15 of them or 14. And you don't know what the other five or six of them are. So we think contract reviews are very simple. It's just, you know, expectations. What am I going to do for you? What are you going to do for me? And then understanding the termination clauses on how to get out of the agreement. Can I terminate? Can they terminate me? What happens if, you know, things aren't working out or I'm not doing what they told me to do. So those are kind of the main, if you want to call it the three buckets, expectations of you, expectations of me, what happens if we don't fulfill the deal? And then of course, post-termination provisions, tail insurance or how bonuses are paid or you know restrictive covenants, which you could bucket into the expectations of the physician. Those are the things that we look for. Simple, definitely not easy because if you don't do this every day, sometimes 
you may think that the expectation is clear, but you're unsure. Or things change on the employer's end. So then how should the contract read knowing that they may hire more doctors, they may lose doctors, they may change compensation over time. So it's all about expectations. And as long as those expectations are clear from both parties, we feel that the physician has a, a better understanding of the position and hopefully a, a longer tenure in the position if that's what the physician wants. You said so many great things there that I want to back up for a second. I could see, like myself, was nodding along. I, I can assume that several listeners here are going, oh, yeah, that, that's really smart. Oh, that makes sense. I could also see a few of them going, uh-oh, I don't have that in my current contract or you know, oh, this is really good. I'm looking at a contract right now and it doesn't have these things. What does someone do or what's the next step if you're looking at this and going, okay, out of these 19 or 20 metrics that you just said, my contract only has seven. What's the next follow-up? Well, knowing is half the battle, right? So I know what should be in there and it's not there. So then the next step would be if you're already employed, then it's finding a time to, if you're employed and everything is good, there maybe is no need to, right? Maybe you understand the expectation because your schedule is clear. And I mean, the person who changes, who develops the schedule or the executive or an administrator at the facility can change, which means they may change what has been verbally agreed to and, and conducted over the years. But if you've got a new agreement and you're looking at, so now what do I do with it? Well, obviously having a robust in-depth conversation with the, you know, with the employer, whomever's offering you the agreement to say, this is the way that I understand it. Is that correct? Great. Let's document those expectations in the agreement is a great next step. We do see physicians who are employed somewhere who have a renegotiation come up or their contract term is up and they will reach out to us to say, I didn't have the initial contract review. I'd like to have this redraft reviews. Sometimes things dramatically change on the second draft or third draft, and sometimes they're just a small addendum. But we do have physicians that reach out to us and ask us to review any changes. And that provides a good time, not only to discuss you know, your pay and how you're compensated and everything else, but also to maybe go back and re-clarify some of those expectations that weren't in there initially. I think that's really good advice because it's one of those, how's the saying go? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, if things are going well at your job, don't try to blow things up to get, make sure you have all these things going in. But I think at the same time, if you're, if you're looking at it, let's be real, let's just take 250 K as as a salary and you're negotiating a potentially, let's say 20 year job. That's a $5 million contract with, you know, at a base level, it's going to scale with, with uh, increases and things like that. But you're talking about quite a bit of money. So it's, it's important yeah. to understand what's in your contract. And I think, John, you, you gave a lot of great examples of things that you need to know when doing this. I will tell you this, Ryan. I mean, you know, one thing, whether you're employed somewhere and things are going great, but you're looking back at your contract out of the file after you listen to the podcast and you think, oh, no, I didn't have yeah. anybody look at this and I don't have those in here. Do you need to go back to them right now and say, hey, I just listened to a podcast and I really need these details in here? I, I don't think so. We we always tell whomever we're giving an educational talk or people that we're working with, we always tell the physician that most of the time, and it's not 100%, but most of the time, the employer is not out to get them. They have good intent. If the contract says you'll work wherever we tell you to, and they told you you'll work at the main hospital on Main Street, their intent isn't to tell you that verbally and then get you to sign and then 
send you wherever they want to and outreach five different days a week and schedule you for Saturdays as well. I mean, that's not their intent, you know, 99% of the time. So there has to be like this kind of trust level involved, if you will. And if things are going great, then, then that's wonderful. If you have a relationship with somebody at the facility, that counts as well. But it's one of those kind of, you know, happy balances because, you know, you don't want to upset somebody who you're negotiating or discussing with by asking for too much detail. At the same time, you don't want to leave yourself open knowing that whoever is giving you that verbal promise and telling you these things, say, don't worry about it. It's okay. Because that person can leave. That administrator can move on. That person can get fired or, or terminated. Or the we've seen a lot of consolidation. The employer can even sell. And now you have a whole new you know, structure to report into. So it's one of those kind of happy balances where you don't want to over-index it too much because you have the same goal. At the same time, this is really important. Again, there these are expectations on, to your point, a, tw- a potentially 20 million, maybe on the low end, contract for a lot of the folks listening. Yeah. And, and I can see, and when, when we basically come out with this, you know, a lot of physicians or residents are finishing their final year and they're looking at contracts and they're seeing this. So I think it's going to be quite timely for them to be analyzing and looking at this stuff. And when they are, what if it doesn't say call schedule? What if it's not, you know, what is full time? Some employers think it's different. Like what if it just says full time? Do you normally advise, Hey, get some clarity on this. Like, are there any sticking points that you're like, this should be a line in the sand. You know, you, you need to actually have this in the contract. Are are there any things that you typically say are non-negotiable? This has to be in there. I mean, that's individual based on the physician and their situation and the employer and the position, I think, and their goal, if their goal is to be there forever, if their goal is to work there for a year and then leave. So I think that's individualized. But I mean, just of course, the core thing should be where are you going to work if it's a large employer with multi-location? You know, what's your salary and how are they going to pay you? And then very important things like malpractice insurance, you know, um, having documentation on what is it. And, and if the agreement ends for any reason, if a extended reporting endorsement is necessary or, or tail insurance, as some people call it, what happens in that situation? Those things should be very, very specific because if things work out long term, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. But if there's a chance that it doesn't, then those things are going to impact your next move because your next employer may say, I need you to provide proof of your prior acts insurance of your last position. It may cost you $20,000 or $100,000 because of lost wages or not understood bonus pay. And so those things should be very clear when it comes to the agreement. Yeah, absolutely. I think lost wages is a big one that most people don't really think of. Yeah, I, I mean, and I agree that we've had so many conversations with physicians that will say, and I don't want to, I don't want to say it's not their fault or it is their fault, but we've had so many physicians say, I, John, I was screwed over twenty thousand in my last job, or John, they ripped me off twenty thousand or fifty thousand dollars, and the employer may well have, or the physician just didn't understand the agreement and how the bonus was paid, or they didn't understand how the bonus was paid back if they left or they didn't understand that expectation. Sometimes the employer is the bad person, and yes, they're trying to screw people over. Other times, it's just not clear on that expectation. So did they get ripped off or anything? Maybe, or maybe they just didn't understand what the details were. Those small, minor details at the beginning that may not have seemed too important at the time, because you didn't even know it wasn't included, or you thought it was clear, because you didn't have it reviewed by somebody, or you know, or even somebody who did review it didn't understand what they were doing because they don't do a lot of them. 
those are things that can really, really cough on the back end. Absolutely. It's one of those, you don't know what you don't know. And that's almost the entire reason why this podcast is so they can actually be aware of what's going on, what to look out for. You know, we look at this as we're going, you know, five feet deep and a mile long. We want to explain as much as we can so you can be armed with this information. I think it's great. And that kind of flows into the next thing I wanted to talk about with you is what are like some of the most overlooked aspects that physicians tend to miss in their contract? So I think it just goes back to kind of how they should read through it. We see a lot of physicians where they don't have things like call in there or they don't have call should be equitable or call should be uh, approved or capped. And, you know, sometimes employers don't want to put that in. Here's a, here's a perfect story. Somebody close to me, a relative actually, was signing a general surgery contract. They had three surgeons, or they had two surgeons. He was going to be the third, and they had told him, we have another one signing the same time as you. You guys are going to start together. So call will be Q4, right? And he signs. The other physician doesn't sign. Then they lose somebody over a, a couple of quality issues. So now calls one and two, and it's in a location that's maybe not as desirable for some people, and the employer can't find one, let alone two other people. So his call, he didn't, he didn't have it defined in the contract. So they're asking him to take more call. He's forced, if you will, to take more call, and they're paying him, but the rate is less than what he feels his time is worth to take call. So he's got a couple of options. Right. I mean, he can leave if he wants to. It cost him a lot of money. They gave him bonuses and dollars up front and student loan and he bought a home and all that kind of stuff. He can try to renegotiate, which he doesn't have a whole lot of negotiating capital with a non-compete and just building a big house and everything else. Yeah. Or he can just suck it up and do the call, which does not make him happy. Wife's not happy. Kids don't seem as much. But that's just the process in some contracts, if you will. And so something as simple as defining your call, having your call defined, if it's equitable, but then cap it, have compensation, make the compensation painful for the employer so they can get locums in there. If it's something that, I mean, call has to be covered, of course. So let's make it really expensive for them to keep having you on call if they don't want to bring locums in. Something as small as that would be really important and often overlooked by physicians. Something you mentioned in here was the non-compete. And I don't think a lot of newer physicians give really any consideration to that. They have no intention of competing with their brand new employer, probably in a new town or city or state. Right. And so they, they don't really look at it. And this was something that, that played a big factor in, into your story here. So can you talk just a little bit about non-competes? Is it normal? Obviously I'm going to say it depends on specialty or field, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of like area or radius around the Pacific. Yeah. I mean, we see them in the vast majority of contracts. There are areas that don't have them in there, you know, states that don't allow them, um, that changes often, but we see them. Um, some are reasonable and market appropriate. You know, one year, seven miles, you can't work from your main hospital or your main location. Others are completely inappropriate. It'll, you know, the contract, number one, maybe not specific on your location. And then the non-compete will say the non-compete is from any location that you work. So does that mean if you, again, you don't have control over your location, it's open to the employer's discretion. So if the employer has you do a procedure at the hospital and then have clinic in a different building and then have an outreach across the way, all three of those are now obligated to the non-compete. Okay. The non-compete, mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it dissolves in the right situation, 
we like to think of non-competes and say that they should go away at a minimum if the contract ends for any reason outside of the physician's control. So we talked termination earlier. Well, if the employer has a no-cause termination in the agreement where they can terminate the physician for no reason at any time, maybe funding dries up or they just don't like the person, they're not a good motivational fit, they hired too many people, I mean, fill in the blank, the physician should not be damaged by having a non-compete because the employer made a bad decision. And so there are certain instances where non-compete should go away. You know, um, have they enforced non-competes in the past? Does everybody have the same non-compete? Those are all questions and very valid questions that we feel should be asked during the contracting, contract negotiation process between the physician and the employer. Yeah, that's a great little tip there. I'd love that. That was a great tip. And that kind of gets me thinking here, like, what are some of the ways that uh, physicians could maybe negotiate a better contract? Well, I think number one is understanding that, like I said before, you both have the same goals. Uh, most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. You both have the same goals. You want to practice and do a great job and help lots of patients. They need somebody with your expertise and skill set. You both want to serve the community. You, know, you want to provide for your family. They want to be able to make a profit in you know, whatever business mode that they're in, right? I mean, you guys both, and, 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 and nobody, for the most part, wants a short-term relationship. Most of the time, people want long-term relationships, and that's the understanding. Now, obviously, that changes depending on the situation. So number one, it's understanding that, right? It's not you versus them. It's not you win or I win. It's that you, everyone has the same goals here, and that's you know having a good expectation in long-term. Mm-hmm. So to that end, it's number one, what you said earlier, knowing what you don't know or what it doesn't say. We've seen two-page contracts. Those are harder for us to go through than a 20-page or a 30-page contract because there's nothing in them. But some physicians get two pages and they say, oh, John, it's easy. It's only two pages. Other times, they're way overdone. There's 70 pages we've seen. So I think, number one, it's understanding what's in there and then what's not, what should be in there and what should not be in there, filtering through the noise, and then formulating what's important to the physician, you know, and then we always tell our physicians that we work with to approach it like you approach a patient. Be very specific in how you ask your questions. Do a very good thorough history, if you will, and then formulate your plan of action. So I give the example sometimes. If I'm an orthopedic surgeon, which I'm not, so this is going to sound terrible, of course. It might be <laughs> comical for some of your listeners who are surgeons. Probably. But I may say, and somebody's in there, and I say, hey, I'm in here because my knee hurts. Great. What caused your knee to hurt? Is it a shooting pain? Is it a dull pain? Does it hurt when you stand up or when you sit down or both? Does it hurt when you're active or when you're sitting on the couch? Does it hurt if I poke you here? What if I bend it this way? Right? And then the surgeon's getting, you know, they're going through their algorithm in their mind to think, do I need to do an x-ray or an MRI? Do I need to do a scope or is it a meniscus or is it a ligament? They're going through that whole process, right? Should I give you an injection or should I cut you open and see what's going on? And so, Just like that process, you should approach the contract process the same. You're not just going to call them up and wing it. You're going to be very purposeful because you haven't been trained for, you know, three years or six years on how to ask these questions. So maybe take some notes and be very purposeful with the question. Hopefully you'll have somebody review it and that somebody or some firm will give you good ideas as far as what to ask for and then how to ask for them. And then pick up the phone and have your 
have your list, right? Maybe compensation is the most important thing. Maybe you could care less about compensation. You want to be a partner as quick as possible. Maybe you don't care about any of those things because your spouse works in the area and the non-compete is really, really important to you. So again, every situation is really unique because if your spouse has a job, of course, and you have a job and they're happy and you're not, either you're going to be miserable while you work there with a non-compete or you'll have more flexibility in the non-compete. It's identifying what your individual situation is, which is always different. It's not always more money. It's not always flexible start time. It's not always a part-time job or better call schedule. It's always different. And so it's finding out what is important to you and your career or your family or fill in the blank, and then understanding what it says and what it doesn't say, and then coming up with a very algorithmic process on how you're going to discuss it with the employer, and then not just asking binary questions on, can I have to use your 250000 per year example earlier? Can I have 270 No? Okay. So not having like a binary, can I, yes or no, but you know, understanding how they set the non-compete or understanding how they have compensation set or understanding what their expectations are for RVU production. Because if you understand it, now you can go back and have a request. So I give the example all the time to ask, how do they come up with compensation? So if they're giving you an offer of 250 and you say, hey, how do you come up with compensation? And maybe there's a signing bonus for 20,000 and a salary for 250. And you think you want to ask them for 270. Well, if you say, can I have 270? And they say, no, you're, you're there, right? But if you ask them, hey, how do you come up with compensation? If they say, well, John, we've started the last seven doctors at 250. So that's our flat salary. We'd never change it. Now, you know, I don't even need to ask for 270 because I know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. So then you can double down on on an increased signing bonus. Or then you can then run into how do you get maybe more bonus dollars. So I think that all those things means it's not easy. Again, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. So it's finding out what all of those things look like and then having a really good plan of action. Just like if you go in to see a patient, it might be more automatic if you're seeing a patient because you've done it 10,000 times. Um, and so it's being very purposeful with how you approach the conversation with the employer. And then, uh, again, understanding that you guys all have the same goals, which is come to an agreement, you know, sign the contract, and then provide care to great patients over a long term. I think it's great. And as I'm sitting here, you know, it's one of those get them to tell you more then you tell them in the beginning, you know, ask some open-ended questions and try to understand where they're coming from. I think that was a, a great example that you gave there with uh, the base salary. If someone's sitting here listening and they're like, that's great. I have a two-page contract. You know, what do they do there? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cut and dry. There's not that much meat on the bone, if you will. What are they going to do with a two or three-page contract? It goes back to asking a lot of questions. Sometimes like we'll see like, Great academic contracts will be two or three pages, and they're written more like a paragraph than a formal contract. Mm-hmm. But then there's always references to see the policy manual for benefits, and see the policy manual for termination, and see the policy manual. So if it's got a lot of links and a lot of policy manuals, obviously it's important to understand, click on those links and read through those documents, it, it maybe as unexciting as they are, to understand what those policies and things are. If it's two pages and it's a small little practice and it looks like somebody just kind of created it on their own or found something online and said, you know, you'll be a doctor and I'll pay you 250. If everything works out long-term, then it's probably not a big deal. But if it's 
one of those things that you're signing and you're obligating yourself to something, you should know what's not in there. And if it's only two pages, there's probably not a lot of detail on what happens if things don't work out or if things do work out. How are you paid? When are you paid? How are they structuring things? You know, and we've seen some fairly decent done contracts in two or three pages, but are all the aspects there to kind of come together and, and be reasonable? We just haven't seen a lot of it. Usually we see a sweet spot in about you know, 11 to 14 or 15 pages or so. We feel like that's a good amount to get all the requirements in. At the same time, um, good expectations from both ends. But if they've got a two-page contract, if that's all they're going to get, and the employer says, this is what we offer, then I think it's about asking really good questions, having as much clarity as possible, and then understanding that the contract's not perfect, but that doesn't mean that it's not a great employer to see a lot of great patients and provide for your family and provide value to the community and provide value to their practice long-term. You know, we, we always say, so even if the contract is perfect, but the employer is less than ideal, it can be a bad situation. If the contract is a complete nightmare, two pages, there's no details in there, but everything looks great, everything works great, and the boss is wonderful, and they let you do what you want to do, and everything is great, and you work there for 25 years, then that you know, two-page contract that wasn't written well, maybe wasn't even compliant, doesn't even really matter much. Yeah. But if you don't know what you don't know, and all physicians start with the intent that they're going to be there a long time. But the vast majority of people don't stick around after their first contract. And so if it's not the right way, it might cause a lot of pain on the back end if those expectations aren't clear. Yeah. And speaking of less than ideal employers, what if you're going through like the government, right? And they don't give you this formal contract <laughs> you're expecting. And it's just like, hey, here's our offer letter. And I, you know, maybe it's 300 words or whatever. What do you do there? We don't review a lot of those. I've heard about them. Honestly, I haven't heard of like a nightmare scenario of someone going and working for the VA. You know, it tends to be a, here's our salary structure. And, you know, if you want to quit, you can give us two weeks and you'll be done. You know, you work for the VA. So, you you know, you don't need to worry about a tail insurance for your malpractice. Are they going to put details in there? No. I mean, they, they're typically a form contract and you take out one physician's name and put in another one. And, you know, cardiology is based at this amount and primary care is based at this amount and, and et cetera. So, we think that they should be looked at, if nothing else, just a cheapo kind of review. I don't think you need to pay someone $10,000 to negotiate it for you or go into much detail, but they should probably be looked at just to make sure that there's nothing in there that you don't understand, or at least to have somebody to bounce ideas off of that's not with your frame. Um, but you know, we haven't had a lot of nightmare horror stories on those situations, but knowing that there's a vast minority of physicians, most of the time, that's not what people are looking at. So John, at, at this point in the show, we turn it around and do a curbside consult. And what we're doing is we're asking the expert one question, what are the intangibles that a physician should look for when reviewing a group or an opportunity? Great question. And we actually touched on this a little bit earlier, where if the contract's not great, but the group looks fantastic, it could be a wonderful situation. We look at things like turnover. You know, Why is their position open? Is somebody retiring? Or has it been open for three years? Do they, did they have somebody leave? If so, why did that individual leave? Was it because their spouse was moving across the country? Was it because they just weren't happy? Intangibles, like outside of the formal two-page or 70-page contract, why is the position open? How do I feel with the folks that are there? 
Do I enjoy the community? Can I see myself here long term? Is the group good size? If people don't leave, that's a wonderful sign. They're transparent with things. You may or may not have a bonus. There may or may not be a raise. And you don't understand how that's structured or what their expectations are. If you ask them in a partnership, if, if you're getting paid a lot less money than market should bear for like a partnership opportunity, and you say, okay, so if I take less money now, what kind of long-term benefit will I have on compensation? Sometimes if they're not open and transparent with some of those questions around partnership or around a buy-in or around, you know, are the partners very productive or not very productive? You know, if they're kind of guarded around that information, that would kind of be a sign of caution for us. Um, I don't expect them to open up the books and give you all the financials, but we've seen that. But we like transparency from the group. I think that's good. You know, how productive is the group? Like I said, are they, you know, top notch? Are they kind of chugging along? Are they a lifestyle group? Are they a workaholic group? Um, you know, those are all kind of intangibles that we look for when we talk to a, a physician and we say, tell me about the group. You know, why are they hiring? Do you want to be here forever? What about the community? How much competition is there? If there's a bunch of people leaving to go to the local hospital and that's why they're hiring, that could continue to happen. There's some specialties, Ryan, you probably know, that are getting looked at by a lot of private equity firms. Mm -hmm. So uh, is, are you going to sign to put a bunch of dollars, if you will, on the balance sheet and in the income statement so they can flush up the valuation so they can sell out in two years because they're all going to retire? Now, you're not a partner and they're cashing out to the beach. Having those kind of understandings before as you're going through the the due diligence process, if you will, which includes the contract as well as you interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you on the site visit are things that we feel are very, very important and tangible that sometimes are not or oftentimes are not reflected in the contract. And we always tell the physician, the physicians, they have good gut feelings, right? When you see a patient and sometimes you're like, yeah, I think it's this or I don't think it's that or I wonder if you've got this or I should do this test because something in my gut telling me to. We say sometimes just trust your gut. You know, I mean, the contract's very, very important, of course, but those intangible things we think a physician can trust their gut with sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. John, this has been amazing. You're such a fantastic resource, and I truly appreciate you being on the show. Can you tell uh, everyone here who maybe hasn't heard about contract diagnostics and what you're doing over there a little bit about yourself and, and your firm? Yeah. Um, we don't think it's boring at all. We have an absolute blast doing this stuff, but we look at contracts all day. It's all we do. We don't log their information and market a bunch of stuff to them. We don't try to sell them anything. We don't have any verticals. We just do contracts. And we, we love doing it. We're a company. We're not a law firm. We, we, we help people understand contracts, and then we coach them on what they should ask and how they should ask it. So we go through, here's what the compensation says. Here's what the document itself says. And then based on our, we have a big, robust database of thousands and thousands of data points on physicians that we've helped you know, sign deals that we can say, look, here is a blinded database about what we're seeing in your local market. So here's what your value is. And then we can help guide them and coach them in that process on how do they clarify or negotiate or something on their own. We have an absolute fun time doing what we do here. We provide good documentation to the physicians. We have all flat price packages so they know what they're going to pay when they come in. We don't charge them per hour, email, or any of that kind of stuff. It's super easy to sign up online for a review time or call us for, for a free consult. We offer that sometimes. We're specialized. And so most physicians can appreciate the fact that 
we do contracts. You know, you, you want to sue your employer, don't call us. You know, you want to go through a divorce or get through a speeding ticket, uh, you know, unscathed. I mean, we don't do that kind of stuff. We're not a law firm. We look at position contracts. That's our hyper focus. We give lectures across the country from an educational perspective on compensation trends and, and what we're seeing in various specialties. And that's always fun. But that's a, a quick snapshot on contract diagnostics. We look at contracts all day and we get to work with great physicians and uh, we love to educate and uh, anything that allows us to help out people. Uh, understand contracts, understand that they should get them reviewed, whether through us or through somebody else is what we're signing up for. I love it. I can appreciate the flat fee uh, that you guys do. And uh, that's something I do over at, in my business is the true flat fee model. I think it works out best for, for everyone involved. And um, I, I really appreciate someone out there that loves what they do and is doing a great job Maybe you don't know, but I, I've had dozens of people that I know have gone through your services and love oh, every, every minute of it, which is weird when you're talking about contracts and people <laughs> saying that they had a great experience and love it. So that's why I wanted to bring you on the show. I know you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. I love that uh, you're, you're talking around the country on employer uh, in, in terms of uh, compensation benefits. And uh, I, I'd encourage all of you. Uh, that if that's something that you'd like to hear on the show, maybe we can convince John, twist his arm and bring him back on to maybe talk about that stuff. So John, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, it, I'm honored to have you here and you did an excellent job. Yeah, we appreciate you know, the opportunity to share information and knowledge. Like I said, we have a blast at reviewing contracts or educating people around them and anything we can do to help, that's what we're here for. So we encourage anybody to reach out to us on the website or give me a call or whatever they prefer, whatever's best for them. And we will be here to help them in whatever capacity we can. In Journal Club, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site dadsdollarsdebts.com titled Getting the House in Order. These type of posts are my vice. I absolutely love reading how someone wants to get their financial life in order and what they believe are the steps in order to get that accomplished. Dad's dollars debts. Okay. It's kind of a mouthful. So I'm just going to call him triple D from now on writes a killer post on what he perceives is the way to keep your financial house from collapsing. We actually share a similar philosophy, which is keep things simple. There's no need to overcomplicate your financial situation, especially if you just recently finished training or have lots of, let's say, earning potential ahead of you, read that as negative or little to net worth. So in this article, Triple D, yeah, I'm actually going to keep calling him that, gives us several points that one should consider when getting their financial house in order. I'm going to quote some of the points and add some commentary in when it's applicable. Okay, so the first is setting up a budget or an expense review. Okay, before you fast forward, please don't. We won't use the B word again. Let's call it a spending plan. He tells us how his family does an expense review and doesn't keep a formal B word. I like that approach, but I tend to actually look ahead in cash flow planning as it tends to help clients understand like what's coming up, not what's happening in the rear view mirror. Next, he says, let's determine your net worth. And I like he just gets right to the point. And I quote, I think it can do a few things. One, it sets up a visual goal allowing for motivation. I agree. How much are we worth? How much do we want to be worth today, next year, in the next five years? And two, it lets us organize our debts by amount owed and then interest rate. 
After organizing and visualizing the debt that is sitting on our chest like an elephant, we can deal with it. Third is to get some insurance. And not just any type of insurance, but he talks about term insurance and disability insurance specifically. And first, we did an entire show back in April with Larry Keller. So go check out that episode for the ins and outs of insurance. But he also mentions auto coverage and more importantly, umbrella insurance. To quote, umbrella insurance sits and waits for something bad to happen that that eats up your auto and your home insurance and is still hungry. So say there's a lawsuit for a million dollars and your auto insurance only covers up to 500,000 in claims then the umbrella kicks in to cover the other half million. The premiums are around, I don't know, $300 a year for 2 million in coverage for us in California, but it can vary by state. Next is to set up a will or a trust. And we talked a lot about this in a very old episode with Chris Burke titled, you don't have a financial plan unless you do this. So I'd encourage you guys to all go back if you want to learn more about estate planning to check that episode out. Following estate planning is to max out your employer sponsored plans. And if you have the option to contribute to these accounts, then do so, particularly if there's an employer match, which is essentially free money. Limits for 2019 were just increased to 6,000 for IRA contributions and 19,000 for 401k and 403bs. Speaking of IRAs, setting up one is next on his list. If you make more than the modify adjusted gross income, set up a traditional IRA and do the backdoor Roth conversion if you can. Either way, make sure to contribute the max. For residents, this could be a little tough. If you're making six figures though, you should be able to get this fully funded. And remember, you can set up one for your spouse even if they aren't earning an income. In my experience, I see so many residents and new attendees making some poor decisions concerning their finances. If They took some of this advice presented in excellent articles such as this one. Mistakes would be fewer and far between and could end up saving them tens of thousands of dollars and frankly make financial planning a whole lot easier. If I could add one little thing though, it'd be to stress to not let the lifestyle creep inflate way too fast. That's the biggest problem I see when advising physicians. It's not how much you earn, it's about how much you save. And the sooner you realize that point, the easier financial planning becomes. Triple D, Dad's Dollars Debts, thanks for an excellent article, and I'll make sure to link this in the show notes. Well, that was an excellent episode with John Apino, don't you think? He and his firm, Contract Diagnostics, have tons of experience helping physicians clear the muddied lingo of their employment contracts. There's a lot of noise in every one, but we work to generate, I think, a firm understanding of where to start. Here's the deal. I've dealt with a lot of clients who've had poor contract agreements, ultimately putting the employer's interest first. And since physicians aren't experts in reviewing their own contracts, they end up paying back collection bonuses or they meet, they actually don't meet the quality metrics or other expectations that are kind of put forth in their contract. And John talks about what to look for and shares how physicians can build clarity in those things to protect them from the unexpected. Part of the contract is to outline the specifics of compensation, non-competes, post-termination, and other aspects of the physician's day-to-day work. But what John sees pretty often is that physicians aren't really paying attention to the details, which is kind of shocking, but I kind of get it. We address some of the overlooked aspects that physicians tend to miss in their contracts, such as how just they actually read through it. In this episode, we also talked about the ways physicians can negotiate a better contract. 
having a relationship built with a potential employer, finding a happy balance, and taking the time to appropriately ask for more detail are some of the ways John says places you in a positive position to negotiate the terms that benefit you better. All in all, should you review your contract? Yes, you should. And by now you should have a solid footing on how to go about doing that in a way that'll protect you and support your goals. As a community update, we have some really fun things coming up in the next few months. We're going to be doing a financial planning live segment on the show. We'll also be breaking down some of the listener questions and key planning sections. And I'll keep bringing on a few guests to talk through some of those points with me. We're also going to be hosting our very first ever Facebook Live in our Facebook community page. So come check it out. And for more info, check out the Facebook events page. I'm always looking for more questions on the show. So don't forget to call in and leave me a voicemail at financialresidency.com question. Also, I want to remind you guys that there's several guides that I've created that have been added to the website financialresidency.com ranging from student debt to insurance and almost everything in between. All of them are action-packed with really good advice on how to approach each of those topics. Yeah, I just said it was action-packed. So make sure you go to financialresidency.com and download those free guides. As your host of the Financial Residency Podcast, I'm not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. I'm glad you came here to learn and get excited about your finances. There's no purchase necessary to win, but you do need to know that the money decisions should be talked through with someone knowledgeable about your situation. And unfortunately, that person isn't me, unless you're already a client, then that's a totally different story. So consult an attorney, a CPA, or heck me, a fee-only financial planner to help you get on your feet the right way. Next week, we have a really unique show planned with a special guest and my new partner over at Physician Wealth Services. We're going to cover a very unique article also to be sure. uh, So check that out in next week's show. You're not going to want to miss it. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.